Welcome to Pete Care's Stories of Hope and Healing podcast. We have 11 episodes exploring the hope and healing framework. This framework sets the foundation for caring and working with young people in residential care in a way that understands and responds to trauma. The Hope and Healing Framework was written by Encompass Family and Community Proprietary Limited. In this podcast series, you'll be listening to the stories of young people previously in residential care, practitioners with residential care experience, and experts who were part of the advisory group for the Hope and Healing Framework or are specialists in trauma and child protection. All young people on staff have been given a pseudonym to protect their confidentiality. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners are warned that episodes may include names and voices of people who have since passed away. I think it's unique for every person uh, what their struggles are. Welcome to the fourth episode of our Pete Cares Stories of Hope and Healing. I'm your host, Dr. Chelsea Leach from Pracademics, and in this episode, we'll be exploring another fundamental area of care, healing. You will be hearing from two young people, Jessica and Chantelle, as well as Peter, who is a very experienced residential care staff member. You will also be hearing from three experts in the field, including two members of the Hope and Healing Expert Advisory Committee, who are Lisa Hillen and Howard Bath, as well as from Dion Tatau, who is from Quatsit. We hope that their stories and ideas will bring to life this important element of hope and healing. As this podcast will be shared throughout Queensland, we would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of these lands. We'd like to pay our respects to elders past and present, as well as emerging community leaders. We'd like to acknowledge the hardships suffered by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, and we hope this podcast is sensitive to their experiences. We'd also like to acknowledge the important contributions that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander professionals, elders and volunteers make within the child protection sector in Queensland. If you have listened to our earlier episodes, you will be familiar with the four fundamentals of residential care that are outlined in the Hope and Healing Framework. In the earlier episodes, we discussed safety, nurture and development. And in this episode, we're exploring healing. So to begin, Lisa Hillen, who was a member of the expert advisory group, explains to us her understanding of healing. Often kids aren't coming with a sense that they're coming to residential care to heal. They're coming there because that's where they have to go to live to to be safe enough. Um, But in essence, what we should want, you know, healing is really about having a, um, a new end to a difficult story. It's about not saying that these experiences haven't happened, but that I learn to deal with them and understand them and accommodate them in myself in a different way going forward and that I can have a different view of myself. So I think every um, everything in residential care should be about creating a healing environment. Um, and that's really about healing doesn't happen as a therapy, it happens in relationships. Lisa's explanation has highlighted that healing is not about young people forgetting the difficult things that have happened to them but about changing the way they understand themselves. Healing also includes supporting young people to learn new ways of relating to others and developing a sense of belonging in the world. The Hope and Healing Framework emphasises that residential care workers need to be attuned to the impacts of trauma and loss on young people and understand how these experiences have contributed to young people's needs for healing. This may include pre-care experiences of abuse and neglect, But there may be other factors, including intergenerational trauma, 
and losses experienced by coming into care and having multiple placements. Chantelle explains this from the perspective of a young person in care. I'm not saying you don't understand, but like from our eyes, that's how we see it. We don't see like, you understand what it's like to lose your whole family, lose everyone and then still like, you want someone, like most kids play up because they want someone that's gonna be there no matter what. So like, say you give birth to your child, you're not gonna just go, oh, see you later, next house, the moment you've had enough of them. Dion Tatau is the Regional Practice Coordinator from the Queensland Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Child Protection Peak, known as Quatsip. Dion highlighted the impact of being separated from extended family. This impact may apply to all young people in care, but it is particularly relevant for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander young people who traditionally have strong connections with their broader family group. I'm Dion Tadau, I'm an Iman and Wadja man from central Queensland on my mum's side. My dad's family um, is South Sea Islander from Ambrim Island in Vanuatu. And I'm the Regional Practice Coordinator at the Queensland Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Child Protection Peak. Some, some of the sometimes for us that haven't been removed from families, we take these things for granted. But our kids and young people that are that are in care don't have that, and it's um, some things that we take for granted and don't think about, like our grandmother sitting down and telling us stuff, our grandmother growling at us, our grandmother telling us who we're related to. Lisa also highlighted the importance of understanding the impact of intergenerational trauma on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander young people. You know, one of the things is that there's very poor understanding of the stolen generations and the impact of that cultural disruption mm. and cultural connectedness that has occurred for families and particularly in Queensland where it was quite endemic mm. and people were moved and disrupted really significantly. And one of the things I think is residential care staff and residential care managers have a responsibility to educate themselves about that, mm -hmm. to educate themselves about what it means uh, for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children and their families, and that that disruption is now felt so significantly that they have a responsibility to go on the journey to try and repair that. In our last episode, we discussed how extensive trauma and loss can impact on a young person's development. And this can include their emotional development. Another member of the expert advisory group, Howard Bath, discusses how healing involves young people learning to cope with painful feelings in more adaptive ways. The impact of those emotions is one is a painful one. And quite a few writers and thinkers in the field have pointed it out, and James Anglin being one of those in particular, who's pointed out that often what we see are pain-based behaviours, behaviours that spring from the coping, the need to cope with overwhelming and painful emotions, sensations, intrusive thoughts, those sort of things. Um, so that issue of dealing with pain, I think, is a, is a critical one. How do we help a young person deal with the emotional pain of their experiences in, in a... In a what we might call a healthy and adaptive way. Howard highlighted that memories of past experiences may be overwhelmingly painful for young people and some of their behaviours may be an effort to cope with that pain. However, Howard also emphasised that in healing, young people develop skills to cope with future problems as well as the past. Healing has to do with giving young people or helping them with the tools 
uh, in terms of uh, you know how they think about what's going on, who they can turn to, what what strategies they can use, perhaps if they're if they're feeling depressed or overwhelmed, um, but particularly people that they can connect with, who they feel safe with, and who they trust. This ability to withstand stressful and challenging life experiences is often referred to as resilience. The residential care worker, Peter, also emphasised the importance of supporting young people to develop resilience in order to cope with their past as well as their future adversity. You know, a lot of the research will say you're not going to get rid of that memory or that trauma. It's, it's, it's in your body. It's there. But you can overcome it. So, you know, you may get triggered, but you're not going to go hit someone. You know, you might get angry or you might be sad. You're not going to run away or hurt someone. You've got the ability to kind of centre yourself and then move on with life. In later episodes, we will discuss how to support young people to increase their emotional know-how in order to cope with memories of their past as well as build resilience for the future. The Hope and Healing Framework also emphasises that healing is built on the foundation of restorative relationships. Lisa Hillen spoke to us about how young people in care often arrive with a sense of distrust of adults. If you've lived your life waiting for people to trash you or to harm you, then your first point of call is to believe to not not be trusting of the people who you know suddenly greet you at the door and go oh my god this is amazing um and i'm so pleased to see you you're going to be skeptical aren't you i i would be i'm like "Eh, you know who are these complete losers and um you know if you are fearful of being hurt again if your trajectory of life is that people abandon you and have hurt you and the people who you know, kids are in care mostly because the people who were set up to um, care for them, that's their parents or their grandparents or, you know, whoever that is, have hurt them and have caused them harm, then why would they believe that the people now that you're in a quasi-parental role, and I know residential carers don't like to think about this, but you are, that's what you are, you know, you become the parental, you know, um, Uh, person in their life why would they believe that you will be any different to anyone else who has been you know set to to look after them so from their point of view you know you can see that what they're going to do and you have to expect this I think and just you know believe it in your head that at some point they're going to have to test that given that young people have an inherent distrust of adults it is imperative that residential care workers provide consistent and caring responses to young people This involves balancing safety and limits with compassion and acceptance. Lisa highlights that healing can stem more so from these relationships than from therapy. And she talks about the advice given to residential care workers in a service where she had previously worked. To think that every interaction you had was meaningful in every interaction you're having gives young people another way to think about the world and gives you another piece of information about how young people view and understand what's happening for them. Jessica also highlighted how much she valued the support from residential care workers that she saw every day. So I would rather help coming from a youth worker than a professional. Residential care worker Peter also highlighted that he perceived building relationships to be the key role for staff and the program. So I think 
you know, people that can see beyond the behaviour, know how to engage kids, understand the importance of relationships, and understanding what their role is, which is about healing, providing healing, um, and using, you know, the residential program as that platform doing that. As we discussed in the episode on nurture, young people may initially be resistant to these restorative relationships. They may exhibit some very challenging behaviour that requires compassion and acceptance from residential care workers. Lisa highlighted that in order to be compassionate, it is important to recognise where this resistance stems from. Seeing the sort of care that they really wanted from their own families. So in one level, they start to resent that to some extent, don't they? Thinking, you you know, this is really intolerable that I've been, you know, now I'm getting the care from strangers that I really wanted from these people. So now I'm really angry. And of course, all of us are never as nice to the people we like the most, are we? Um, because we always have a belief they'll tolerate. I think residential care workers, if you have that sort of sense in your head about the dynamic, it's much easier to see what young people are doing as not being targeted at you. However, I have to say young people are really great at getting to the very core of where your own vulnerability is and they'll absolutely go to it. Jessica told us that when she was in care, she felt really angry at times, but it was not necessarily about the residential care workers. A lot of the hate and anger towards resi staff is not directed at them like it is again come from a deeper issue like there is meaning behind it and it's not related towards them that's coming from a very personal experience the hope and healing framework emphasizes the importance of consistency and compassion when responding to challenging behavior as well as providing safety and limits for anyone who has worked in residential care Responding to hurt and angry young people is a key skill, but incredibly challenging. We asked our interviewees for some advice around this. Peter highlighted the importance of purposeful actions as a residential care worker. But you have to have that sense of purpose. Why am I doing this? Mm. You know, why am I having to work in this way that may not seem intuitive? It's actually counterintuitive. And that's the thing I think helps people grow and develop. Peter also suggested seeing challenging behaviour from a different perspective. Attention-seeking behaviour is really attachment-needing behaviour. So if you kind of flip that and see it in a different way, that maybe this kid is trying to attach, maybe they're trying to connect in that way, um, you'll see that. Whereas if you can't see that, you see behaviour and you get annoyed and get frustrated. Finally, restorative relationships should extend beyond the residential care environment and young people should be supported to develop positive connections with their family, community and culture. We talk more about how to connect young people with family, community and culture in later episodes. However, Howard explains how, for one young person that he knew, healing was related to connection to others. It wasn't the therapy groups that helped me. He said it wasn't the individual counselling, although that was good at times. He said it was the normal things I did, or I was allowed to do. He said uh, I could go out with my girlfriend, uh, and we could go into town and drink sodas. Um, he said, uh, you know, we could go and eat pizza with friends afterwards. And he said when I turned 16, they taught me how to drive, and then I could drive and be like the other kids. 
And, and so for him, the healing came about by being included, by being treated as normal and being, being able to belong. Dion also emphasised the importance of connection for healing with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander young people. I guess the, one of the things around healing is, is you need to involve, obviously, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, but there are all different types of healing. And one healing could be just connecting those kids to their local elders, community groups, sporting groups, because um, some of them may not have had that connection before. We would like to conclude this episode with a comment from Howard that reminds us that healing is not a one-off event and can be a lifelong journey for young people. The quest for normality and for healing can be a lifelong quest. Um, you know, people have this notion that I, I worry when I hear about treatment programs, um, even though I've been a promoter of them, but when I hear of programs that say, first we'll settle a kid, then we'll help them feel safe, and then we'll do healing. That worries me because it, it suggests that, you know, you can do certain things and then a kid is healed. And the, the research, and I think the personal evidence, is that we heal through doing through life as, as we live. Uh, we have our ups and downs. Uh, we have our successes, and sometimes we have our failures. And, and it's a journey rather than something that just happens uh, you know, quickly with people. This episode concludes our focus on the foundations of care in the Hope and Healing Framework. Our next four episodes will explore the focused therapeutic approach, which includes building young people's capacity for relationships, strengthening connections, increasing emotional know-how, and building a positive identity. To finish this episode, we'd like to offer a few questions for reflection. Do you understand how previous trauma and loss impacts the young people in your care? And what more can your service do to promote the healing of young people in your care? Thank you for listening to this episode of Peak Care's Stories of Hope and Healing. Our next episode will be exploring how to build young people's capacity for relationships. Never underestimate the power of a listening ear. Having someone that you know you can trust and it's like a major thing for a kid. listening to this episode we hope you enjoyed it and gained a better insight into what the concepts mean in your day-to-day roles with children and young people we are indebted to the time and wisdom of our interviewees and would like to thank the create foundation for their support in interviewing the young people be sure to check out our show notes for additional resources for the episode you can also check out our other episodes in the stories of hope and healing series through your favorite podcast app or by visiting peakcare.org.au or pracademics.org.au. This has been produced and narrated by Pracademics Inc. All music has been produced by me, Matthew Schrader.